Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, where we talk about science at you for half an hour. Uh, my name is Chris, and it is a special time of year when the most prestigious awards in the world of science are given out. That is, of course, the Ig Nobel Prizes. These are the kind of the other Nobel Prizes, I guess you could say. They're sort of a parody type of thing, but they're also... Are they whimsical? Are they whimsical? Oh, there's so much whimsy. Yeah, Ooh. it is. It is whimsical. So, so was, were they? Were they had something to do with the Journal of Irreproducible Results originally? Yeah, or the Annals of Improbable Research, one yeah, or the other. Yeah, yeah, one of those. I think there was some sort of split. Yep. Um, which was never reproduced. Um, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so every year they give out their Ig Nobel Prize. So we're going to be looking at a few of those. It's it's funny science for you today. Um, speaking of funny, Stu, what have you got for us? Well, I'm not sure how funny it is. Um, this week, I'm going to be talking, you've probably, you know, seen old people drinking prune juice for various reasons and wondered why the hell prunes, they Prunes drinking prune juice? Old, yeah, well, maybe. I, I've always wondered how, how a prune being a dried fruit, you get juice from prunes, but anyway. Good point. It's puzzled me. That is, that is kind of weird. Anyway, what? I'm going to be talking about a new scientific breakthrough. Uh, it's all about eating prunes and how good it is for you. Claire, what have you got for us today? Um, today I'm going to be chatting with Jay Ridgewell, who works over in Western Australia at um, Curtin University, and she has an amazing app called Fireballs in the Sky, which um, if you see a giant fireball, which is like a huge shooting star. Like a meteor? Yep. You can... if. Um, you can get the app and then trace it, and then um, it's like a huge citizen science project that then um, allows scientists to get information from where the fireballs come from and what um, what we can find out about them. And also where they might land as well. You can track their trajectory. You can track their trajectory and find out where they land and then um, which part of the universe they came from before they landed in our backyard. Fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Keep watching the skies. All right, on with the show. So, yes, it is time for the Ig Nobel Prizes. These are the science prizes that make you laugh and then make you think. As I'm sure you will find out when uh, you hear these things, you'll go, ha, 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 at first. And then you go, oh, well, we'll put that to the test. (laughs) Maybe I'm selling it a bit too hard. Yeah, you you know, they say there's no such thing as, you know, useless results, but... No, some of these are quite good and they they sound useless at first, but they have some meaning to it. And I'm going to dive right in and give you some examples. Okay. Because there have been a a couple of Australian researchers have featured in this year's Ig Nobel Prizes. And are they just uh, the Nobel Prizes for science? Or do they have like a Nobel Peace Prize, Ig Nobel Peace Prize? Oh, there usually is an Ig Nobel Peace Prize, but I don't think there is one this year. Okay. Um, There's no peace this year. They're a little arbitrary, the categories. They kind of vaguely correspond to the Nobel ones, but as you'll see, they're a little bit arbitrary. Okay. But the first one is a genuine category. It is the Chemistry Prize, and it's awarded to, to some researchers from Australia with their colleagues from the United States as well. And they won it for a technique that could unboil an egg. 
I read about this and I was fascinated to that find out. That is amazing. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. So um, for those who don't know what boiling egg or cooking an egg involves, eggs, of course, have a lot of protein. These proteins uh, start off, they're all kind of tangled up like proteins are supposed to be, and they kind of flow around in the liquidy part of the egg. But when you heat it, what happens is the proteins unravel, and then they kind of reconnect in this sort of rigid network. Like They all stretch out and they reconnect in this rigid network, which makes it a solid mass and obviously makes it white instead of transparent. So what this technique does is it's a special way of using a... Uh, what's it called? It's not, a, it's not a flux capacitor, but it's a similar <laughs> name. It is a, a vortex fluidic device. And essentially what it does is it basically it unravels, disconnects the proteins, and then folds them up again the way they were originally. So it removes this, this solid um, protein network and then restores them to the original shape. If I know anything about proteins, it's that they have a very specific structure Mm -hmm. and sometimes you can have proteins that bind together. You know, you can have three or four proteins that are binding together to have a specific structure. How can this uh, machine, like, um, unravel the proteins again and then create it – put them back together in the exact same position. Well, from what I can gather, um, it's not actually... They're not putting a whole egg in here. They're little tiny tubes and that they spin really, really fast, but they also can change the orientation of it. So basically, they just spin the proteins around and get them in the shape they want. Um, So it's essentially a way of custom spinning the protein and folding the protein. Mm. And so it has many other uses. As you say, this is what proteins do. Um, They reckon it can be used to um, improve drugs, that you can essentially design a drug to work the way you want it to do. Um, and it's already been used to as a better way of making biodiesel. So they have you know, complete control over the way the proteins fold. So it's actually quite an interesting development. But yeah, um, unboiling an egg sounds pretty cool. Very cool. Yep. Useful demonstration. Yes. The other Australian contribution is in linguistics. This is actually the Literature Prize, they called it. Great. And this was for a paper that discovered that, huh, is a universal word. Meaning what? Huh? 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 Um, they basically looked at a whole lot of languages across the world and found that all of them had a equivalent of huh, which is that same kind of inflection. Maybe sometimes a vowel sound was slightly different, but there was... They... Huh? huh? Hang on. <laughs> they had a word for huh, or they had huh? As a word, as a sound that they make. And they concluded, they looked at it and they basically concluded it is actually a word. It, it fulfills the criteria for being a word, but it is found in all the languages. So it's kind of a universal word. It's like the first universal wow. word. Because often the, you have... Is it, is it the first universal word or do we have other examples of universal words? Not that I'm aware of. You have like ah? noises like um, owl probably or, you mm. know, that kind of... Laughing, I suppose, is a, yeah. uh, some of these are, are kind of automatic noises, but this one seems to be an actual word because apparently children do not not say it kind of at, naturally. Naturally, at a very early age, they, they learn it, and it has a particular function in language. Like it only occurs in certain usage, I suppose. Uh, you don't so, understand yeah. something. Mm. Yeah, so there's kind of rules to how it's used. Um, so there you go. <laughs> Makes you think, doesn't it? Uh, what other things we have? We have a whole lot of other research. Though. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Um, there was a really good one about a couple of papers analysing insect stings. So these are bee and wasp stings. 
So one um, scientist, particularly uh, Justin Schmidt, he created the Schmidt Sting Pain Index, which rates the relative pain that you feel when stung by various insects. Try saying that 10 times quickly. Yes. Now, Schmidt, um, he was actually put a lot of work into this, and he, he described the sting, not only rated them on a scale, but he described the stings as well, a bit like a, a wine description. Yeah, wow. So I'll give you an so, example. Hang on, Justin yep. was stung by... Every insect that he then described the bite yeah, of. Yeah. So, um, oh. so for instance, um, this owl. Uh, Universal word for owl. Rating a two was the bald-faced hornet, which he described as rich, hearty, slightly crunchy, similar to getting your hand mashed in a revolving door. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas for comparison, another two was yellow jacket, which he described as a uh, sting was hot and smoky, almost irreverent. Imagine W.C. Fields extinguishing a cigar on your tongue. So it's a different kind of <laughs> flavour of sting. Different, different flavour of pain. Yeah. If you want to go to a higher level one, um, the bullet ant rated four, four plus, sorry, and he described it as pure, intense, brilliant pain, like fire walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch rusty nail grinding into your heel. That sounds nasty. I, I sort of think Justin should have got the Ig Nobel for literature as well. Maybe. He's quite good at that. But he also That's... shared the prize with Michael Smith, who um, looked at the effect of stings on different parts of the body. Now, he found that um, like you felt different pain in different areas. So the least painful um... was the skull, the middle toe tip, and the upper arm. Whereas the most painful was the nostril, the upper lip, and the shaft of the penis. Hmm. <laughs> So, yeah. Um, so, they very dedicated researchers. Um, what else we've got? We've got another medicine prize. This is the Diagnostic Medicine Prize, which is quite of a unique category, I suppose you could say. And this was a, um, a study that found that you can diagnose appendicitis, acute appendicitis, by the pain that people feel when they go over speed bumps. So, right. apparently, it's quite specific to appendicitis. And so, that if someone has driven to, say, the doctor's kind of surgery, and you say, well, did you go for speed any problems while you were here? Did it hurt? That's actually a good way of diagnosing where they've actually got appendicitis. So there you go. Useful to know. And if they're not sure, you can just drive them around the hospital car park a couple of times. There's yeah, always speed much. bumps in hospital yeah, car parks. That's yeah. right, Stu. Yep. That is, that is pretty much. I'll, I'll, not too much more. We'll go through the physics prize. That was for discovering the universal law of urination, where basically mammals of all size and body shapes empty their bladders in about 21 seconds, plus or minus 13 seconds. So there's a bit of a leeway there. That's a huge 21 leeway. seconds, plus or minus 13. <laughs> but essentially what they found was that the smaller animals essentially have a much kind of slower flow than your larger animals. And so even though the larger animals have more urine to dispose of, they have like longer urethras. And so they dispose if you, of the If you've ever stood next to a horse quicker. while the horse is going, you'll know that it's yeah. pretty quick. It's a mighty flow. It's yeah. a gush. Yeah. So, yeah, those are the Ig Nobel Prizes. There's quite a few more. Um, we'll put up the link on our Facebook page and you can have a look at those. But um, I highly recommend following the Ig Nobel Prizes and, and, yeah, having a bit of a laugh at real science. I'm going to go home and um, just... Put put an egg in a sock and, <laughs> and spin, spin it, it around, around my head and see what happens. Thank, I think you missed the point. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys like fruit juice? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, are you offering some? No. How about some prune juice? Well, hold the prune juice, please, mate. No. Uh, that, that's a fruit, isn't it? Hang well, on, hang on. Is prune a fruit or is prune a dried? 
Well, prune, prune juice. Uh, pr- prunes are a kind of plum. Okay. Specific um, type of plum? They're a specific type of plum, oh. um, which is in the genus Prunus. You know, that's where the name comes from, for prune. Prune, prune your Prunus. Name. Well, yeah. Uh, it's a Latin name for plums. Um, uh, but dried plums are kind of what prunes are. And, you know, people have been drinking prune juice for a very long time. Often people who have trouble staying regular as in, you know, they have issues with constipation and so forth. And the prune juice seems to uh, have a radical effect on that. A laxative Mm. effect. Um, And it certainly seems to be represented in the shopping trolleys of older people, I've noticed, as I've been peering in people's shopping trolleys in the supermarket. Have you ever had it? It's Yeah, it's kind of like, tastes like dried plums, Mm. I guess. Sounds sort of Um, good. But... uh, Speaking of dried plums, they may actually have more health benefits than just keeping people regular. But the the the, the fruit, not the not the juice. The yeah, the actual fruit itself. Okay, okay. So researchers at Texas A and M University in the United States have discovered that rats fed on a diet including dried plums mm-hmm. have significantly reduced development of precancerous conditions in their colons. It's pretty amazing. Um, so the reason that, you know, this is quite an important finding is that colon cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States. So people dying of colon cancer is the second most common way of dying of cancer in the U.S. That's remarkable. That's very high. It's quite high. Um, I think it's it's around about 50,000 people a year. Um, and you know, they've got a population of 350 million, so, Mm. um, Obviously, trying to reduce the incidence of colon cancer is probably a good thing. Now, one of the effects they measured in the uh, rats they tested was the relative concentrations of different types of bacteria in the rat's digestive tracts at various different points. Um, So there are two main types of bacteria, which is the bacteroidetes and the firmicutes, or firmicutes. Mm Mm-hmm. Now the firmicutes that do they ferment? Is that no? It's actually called? it's actually F I R M. It's oh, just a, it's just an odd okay. little name. Um, so in other research, uh, it's been shown that the ratios of these types of bacteria can have a big impact on health factors like obesity. Hmm. So in another study uh, with mice, they showed that a high concentration of firmicutes in relation to bacteroidetes can lead to development of obesity because the firmicutes are more efficient at releasing energy from food. So they digest the food more and release more energy. Which can then be... Which then the body absorbs and Mm. so you get, um, you know, your body has excess energy, stores it as fat, leads to obesity. So they found this in mice. Um, But, you know, they assume that this will... Follow well, people. Well, you know, we, sh- we, can, we can't. We can't assume. I mean, we can. We can hypothesize. We can conjecture. Well, that that is true. That yeah, is true. Yeah. So um, I think think that the standard warning goes on. Just you know, preclinical kind of it, trials on mice doesn't it is, mean it is it a works on, on humans. The, the 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 interesting part is obviously that the bacteria are very similar between yeah. mice and humans, yeah. and and if they behave the same way in humans, then that could 
provide some explanation potentially down the road in the future at some time. Mm-hmm. But um, don't, don't go and you know assume this is hundred percent right. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. no, no. Yeah. This is this is a mouse study. We're not gonna we're not gonna you know it's about little fat mouse yeah. mice um, mouses <laughs> mice. So in uh, back to the the dried plum experiment, mm-hmm. um, what they found was that the rats who ate the plums had lower concentration of these Firmicutes bacteria in their in their uh, colons. Right. So the diet of the dried plums was directly affecting the ratios of microbes that were present in their guts. Um, they also found that rats on the plum diet had fewer instances of what they call aberrant crypts. Now, a crypt is like a, a tomb or a little... Uh, a little alcove, I guess, mm-hmm. and that's mm. what they, you know, they can actually see these little sort of crypt-shaped or crypt-like uh, lesions um, in the colon, which is a an indicator of later cancerous, or, you know, it's a precancerous mm. indicator that, that cancers may develop, tumours may develop in uh, later down the, down the line. Um, so, yeah, the, the rats on the plum diet had much fewer or a lot fewer of these uh, aberrant crypts uh, in their colons. So it seems like the old prune juice might have some real benefits after all. Of course, you've got to remember that juice is not really the same as actual, you know, solid bits Mm. of fruit. Um, And, you know, there's reason to believe that the fibre in the fruit itself might actually be leading to some of these um, health indicators in the rats, not just the... uh, not just the magical antioxidants, which everyone loves to talk about. Yeah, I, I think I think you know the the, the caveats before going you know, to go here. I mean, you, you don't assume that that now we've discovered that that eating your prunes or whatever is going to going to prevent cancer. It's not hadn't been proven. However, I'm picking now that prune juice, new superfood, hipster bars around the place. Yeah, I'll, I'll have prune juice cocktails. That's going to be it. Some kale in my prune juice. I reckon that's that's let, let's 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 um, put that out there. Prune now, prune twenty sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. just in the interest of full disclosure, this research was funded by the California Dried Plum Board. <laughs> so, right. okay, well, yeah. The findings are certainly favorable to them. I take back everything I said. <laughs> and look, you know, marketing opportunities are probably quite scarce in the dried plum industry. It's kind of hard to think of ways to make Dried plum sexy. Look, California's got a drought. They've got an excess of dried plums. That's that's probably true. Yeah. Good on them. Good on them for re- rebranding. Yeah. And, yeah, the the health food of the nation. They are rebranding with science, apparently. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science. Our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. Have you ever seen a shooting star and wondered which part of the solar system it came from before it started burning up in our atmosphere? Well, scientists from Curtin University are asking just that, but they need our help to track these fireballs across the sky. To talk about the Citizen Science Program, which encourages the public to get involved in tracking fireballs in the sky, I have with me today Jay Ridgewell. 
Now, Jay, tell us a little bit about the Fireballs in the Sky app. So, Fireballs in the Sky, it's really exciting because fireballs are an amazing natural event. They're really big meteors. We call them fireballs when they're really, really big, and this is the exciting part. They're big because they might end up being meteorites that land. And so we want to study fresh meteorites that have just landed, and so we study fireballs. Right. So you want to be able to pick up a rock at the end of all of this? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So we have a, a smartphone app. So if anyone in the world sees a fireball and they can su- submit a report so you don't have to like fret that you haven't seen they haven't filmed it you basically if the phone tells you what to do you draw a, a simulation of the fireball you've just seen and submit it if different people from different places see the same fireball we can actually start to track where it was coming from and where it if indeed it landed Right, so I imagine that's almost like if two people in the same sort of area are seeing the same fireball and they're both reporting it, that's almost like they're validating their data themselves? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the more um, reports we get for the same event, um, the better the data is as well. So it's a citizen science project and it's a bit different to other programs where people are, you know, all counting frogs in the same area all on one day. This is anywhere in the world at any time. If anyone sees a fireball, um, we get those reports. And on our website, we've got a, a map so you can actually see. Anyone can log on or, sorry, go online and see where all those reports have come from. And what's, what's been the most recent reporting? Well, I mean, they happen almost every night. We get a couple. Oh, um, wow. But, yeah, all over the world. So the chances of a few people seeing the same one are, are small, but... Just a couple of weeks ago in Perth, we had uh, four different people up and down the coast submitted a report about the fireball. We also got it on camera, so we knew that, you know, they'd all seen the same one. So tell me a little bit about the cameras. Is the Citizen Science Project backed up by a camera system as well? Yeah. Um, so the, the project Fireballs in the Sky came out of um, a research project called the Desert Fireball Network, which um, is based in Perth and headed up by um, geologists. So Professor Phil Bland is the team leader, and he wanted to study these fresh meteorites. So they set up some cameras in the Nullarbor. Basically, the Nullarbor is the best place, or one of the best places in the world to find meteorites because it's flat, it's red, um, there's not many people and not many trees, oh. and the sky is really dark. So, so set up. Not, not many trees, so does that mean you've got a better chance of finding a meteorite? Yeah, um, both, both it's easier to find one because what you're looking for is a little black rock on the ground, um, but it also means that if you've got cameras looking up at the sky, they're not obscuring the view. So we've now got about 32 cameras across the Nullarbor in Western Australia and South Australia, and they take photos all night, every night of the sky, and occasionally a fireball we get on a camera, and if we get it on a few cameras, we can actually start to track where it came from in space and where it landed so we can go out and find the meteorite. Right. So once you do find the meteorite, what sort of information do you then collect from it and what are the outcomes? So say people are all saying, yeah, I I saw one last night, and then you go and find that one. What sort of information will we get from that? Uh, Meteorites are pretty cool. They're like the 
well, the first of all, they're free samples, so instead of going to space, um, <laughs> they just fall down. Um, and they tell us they're like the leftover, they're like the crumbs from when our solar system formed. So they usually haven't changed much at all since four and a half billion years ago. Whoa. That, um, and they might be, yeah, well, that's, <laughs> they're that's of a asteroids time. or planets. Um, or the moon, and so by studying this free sample that's fallen out of the sky, and if we can track where it came from, then we're effectively studying the geology of that asteroid or that planet. Absolutely. And now for people who might not know at home, and for me who who doesn't know as well, can you tell me the difference between a meteorite, a meteor, and an asteroid, Jay? It's a tricky one. There's a lot of words here, and that's why we use fireballs because they sound amazing. A meteorite is a rock from space that's landed on the ground. A meteor is when you see it in the sky, so it's the light from something Mm. coming through the atmosphere. Um, And we also call them shooting stars or fireballs, or a scientific name for big ones is called a bolide. Um, And then it's got to come from somewhere, so that thing out in space, it's actually called a meteoroid, with a D. Oh, a meteoroid um, when it's yeah, in space. Yeah, like asteroid. Oh. And usually people just call them asteroids and they can be, you know, the size of your head to the size of, you know, dwarf planets kind of thing. Okay, that clears things up. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> now, I remember the first time I saw the biggest shooting star uh, that I'd ever seen. It was absolutely spectacular. The colours were so intense. It was an extremely awe-inspiring experience, but it was a couple of years ago. Can people send you their stories about fireballs if they're a little bit old or do you need yep. uh, current data? For for our research, because we want to go out and find fresh meteorites, we need data, things that are just happening. So we're really yep. up-to-date, stuff you saw last night. But we love having a conversation about those amazing events and we yeah. do lots of stuff. We go to schools and we chat to people and it's a it's a real experience when you see someone and they're remembering this amazing, magnificent fireball across the sky. And we love hearing those stories. So that's why we have um, Twitter and Facebook accounts and we want people to share them with us and we'll share them with the world um, because they're, they're an amazing event and they inspire people to go outside and look up and that's fantastic and that's always a good thing yeah absolutely oh jay thanks so much for speaking to us today i'm really looking forward to hearing more stories about meteors meteorites and fireballs and where they've come from as well now people can download the app from Mm -hmm. um the app store is that right yeah it's it's called fireballs in the sky um and it's on iphone so the app store or google play it's on android as well um, or you can head to our website, which is fireballsinthesky.com.au, um, and we've got heaps of awesome photos and the map of where the app sightings are, and you can download the app from there too. Wonderful. So that's Fireballs in the Sky. Thank you so much for talking to us, Jay. No worries. Thank you. Okay, that is it for another episode of Lost in Science, where we have heard about amusing research. Um, we have heard about um, fireballs in the sky and on the ground, I guess. That's right. Yes, and how you can yeah. download them on the app. Where do you find the app? Um, on, on the App Store, yeah. Or just search for Fireballs in the Sky, just, I think. Yep, it's, it's on the net as well. Yep, yep. Fireballs yep. in the Sky. And Stu has told us some promising news about prunes. 
Uh, now, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It is across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter or we have a blog, we have a podcast. You can find us on the internet. Just look for Lost in Science. That is us. Otherwise, you can listen to us on the radio next week. Once again, Stu, Claire and Chris will get Lost, Lost in Science! science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.